In 2016, a rival foreign power, Vladimir Putin's Russia, launched an attack on the United States of America. What we now know is that American intelligence agencies have concluded that Russia planned and executed a campaign to undermine our democracy and to affect our presidential election. In late June of 2017, the FBI's Assistant Director of Counterintelligence, Bill Priestap, spelled out what happened for the Senate Intelligence Committee. The best way uh, I can describe it is that this was, my opinion, a well-planned, well-coordinated, multifaceted attack on, on our election process and democracy. And on Capitol Hill, just about everyone, Republicans and Democrats alike from both chambers, agreed with the FBI and the broader intelligence community. Here's what Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said. But we are going to look at Russian involvement in the U.S. election. It's a significant issue if it, you know, we, we know they were messing around with it. And how Speaker Paul Ryan. Russia clearly tried to meddle in, uh, in, in our political system. No two ways about it. And Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, who chairs the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee with oversight on these matters. Russia's out to get us all. They want to divide us in a fashion so that their influence grows at our expense. Rhode Island Senator Sheldon Whitehouse is the ranking Democrat on Graham's subcommittee. These are foreigners who are controlling our American elections, and it damages the thing that is most fundamental to our democracy, which is our American choice to fight with each other and make our own decisions and not have it piped in by the it's Kremlin. The Kremlin, of course, says it had nothing to do with the U.S. election. It even addressed the election interference allegations as an April Fool's Day joke when the Russian embassy in Washington posted this fake answering service message on Facebook. You have reached the Russian embassy. Your call is very important to us. To arrange a call from a Russian diplomat to your political opponents, press 1. To use the services of Russian hackers, press 2. To request election interference, press 3 and wait until the next election campaign. Please note that all calls are recorded for quality improvement and training purposes. For President Trump, Russia is a complicated subject. But this podcast isn't about Donald Trump's complications with Russia. We'll leave that to others. As Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois said in late June, understanding what happened in 2016 is clearly a bipartisan issue. The reality is, in two or four years, it's going to serve Vladimir Putin's interest to take down the Republican Party. And if we weren't upset about it, we have no right to complain in the future. This is about defending the democracy and the institution, frankly, the institution of election, in which is essential to people having faith in the institution of government. James Comey, the former director of the FBI, became a highly politicized figure during the 2016 election and in its immediate aftermath. But on the subject of Russia's interference in the 2016 election, he issued a dire warning and testimony before the Senate after he was fired by President Trump. It's not about Republicans or Democrats. They're coming after America, which I hope we all love equally. They want to undermine our credibility in the face of the world. They think that this great experiment of ours is a threat to them. And so they're going to try to run it down and dirty it up as much as possible. That's what this is about. And they will be back. Again, this podcast isn't about politics. As the Wall Street Journal's executive Washington editor, Jerry Seib, wrote in early July, one of the dangers in the current hyperpartisan American debate over Russia's role in the 2016 presidential election is that it's blurring the larger picture. This three-part podcast miniseries is about the larger picture. Welcome to the Kremlin Playbook.
I'm Andrew Schwartz. I work at the Center for Strategic International Studies in Washington. Our acronym, CSIS, is much, much easier to say. CSIS is a bipartisan nonprofit organization that was founded in October of 1962. That's the same month as another crisis involving the U.S. and Russia unfolded, except back then it was the U.S. and the Soviet Union that faced off over the Cuban Missile Crisis. CSIS focuses on national security, but we think about national security in broad terms. In addition to traditional national security policy issues, we also focus on global health, energy, and development policy. And like I said, bipartisanship is our hallmark. The journalist Sidney Freeberg Jr. recently described CSIS well when he wrote that CSIS is, quote, relentlessly centrist and, quote, a pillar of the bipartisan national security establishment. My colleagues, the experts who work at CSIS, are often ahead of the curve. They look at the space between the spaces when it comes to policy. I would wager that many of you hadn't heard about disputed islands in the South China Sea until our experts pointed to it. I sure hadn't. But my colleagues did. And they published satellite photos of sand islands emerging out of the ocean. Those photos, along with our analysis of the situation, were printed on the front page of the New York Times. For the first time, most people were able to visualize and understand the conflicts brewing in the South China Sea, and it made worldwide news. That's the kind of work we do. Heather Conley is one of our most senior experts. She runs our Europe and Eurasia programs. As in the case of the South China Sea, Conley was ahead of the curve when she set out several years ago to understand Russian influence in Central and Eastern Europe. She had served in the George W. Bush State Department, and she knew that the U.S. had become largely indifferent to ongoing developments in this region. So in 2014, Conley embarked on a 16-month study in partnership with the Center for the Study of Democracy in Sofia, Bulgaria. Their task was to understand the impact of Russian influence campaigns in Central and Eastern Europe. The findings of Conley's work were presented in an October 2016 report called, yep, you guessed it, the Kremlin Playbook. The playbook details the cases of Bulgaria, Hungary, Latvia, Serbia, and Slovakia from the year 2004 until 2014. It's an in-depth study of Russian efforts to use overt and covert tactics to expand its economic and political influence in these five nations. In examining these countries, Conley determined that Russia has cultivated an opaque network of patronage across the region that it uses to influence and direct decision-making. As Conley told the Senate Judiciary Committee in mid-March, the idea to study Russian influence campaigns in these countries all began with a letter. Our analytical team recalled a letter that uh, a group of Central European leaders wrote to President Obama back in the summer of 2009 and said that Russia was using overt and covert means of economic warfare through media manipulation and bribery and energy to change the transatlantic orientation of these countries. And we said, well, can we prove that? Is that true? And so what our thesis was is to look at Russia's economic presence in five European countries. We selected the Central European countries, again, because of both the warning, but it's easier in some ways to see Russia's economic presence in smaller countries that have very strong economic, historical, and cultural links uh, to Russia. And we wanted to quantify the economics and see if the policies in the country were changing, if that, that economic influence translated into political influence. What I want to, to make sure you understand is the, Russia's policy is military doctrine. It is called new generation warfare. And the doctrine describes a policy, a strategy of influence, not of brute force. It is better to collapse the country from within 
than the necessity to cross its borders. And so we wanted to explore what that new generation warfare looked like. Russia's new generation warfare exploits weaknesses, it finds them, and it, and it uses them to their great advantage. Conley's findings in the Kremlin playbook show a broad pattern of Russian behavior in Central and Eastern Europe that is helpful to understanding what happened during the 2016 election. As the Wall Street Journal's Jerry Seib wrote in early July, Conley's Kremlin playbook is, quote, the tale of a systematic Russian effort to disrupt democratic and capitalist systems internationally. Conley's Kremlin playbook indeed offers great insight. So let's dive right into it. Part one, why did the Russians do it? Peter Baker is the chief White House correspondent for The New York Times. Baker has covered the past three presidents for The Times and for The Washington Post, where he worked until 2008. In between his stints at the White House, Baker spent four years as The Washington Post's Moscow bureau chief, where he reported on the rise of Vladimir Putin. In 2005, he published an important book on the subject, Kremlin Rising, Vladimir Putin's Russia and the End of Revolution. I asked Baker why Russia launched an attack on U.S. democracy in 2016. Peter, you've written extensively about Vladimir Putin and the unraveling of democracy in Russia. Can you tell me a little bit about the mindset that might lead to Russia now meddling in elections on a global scale? Right. Well, this is a revenge play by Vladimir Putin. From his point of view, we started this. We started it when we encouraged uh, democracy in the Republic of Georgia, in Ukraine, in Kyrgyzstan. In his view, these color revolutions, as they were called in the early 2000s, were a, a, a American plot to uh, create puppet states in the Soviet sphere. And when thousands of people turned up in the streets of Moscow to protest Vladimir Putin's return to the presidency, he saw that as a CIA plot. He explicitly and overtly and publicly blamed Hillary Clinton for that. So this is a revenge play. This is his way of saying, okay, you guys aren't the only ones who can meddle elections. You're going to screw around in my space. I'm going to screw around in yours. It specifically targeted Hillary Clinton, but it's also targeted at the West as a general rule because uh, disruption, in his view, uh, is uh, is the goal. And he has succeeded in disrupting us. We are at odds over this. We are, you know, in a in a in a almost crisis atmosphere uh, because of what Russia did in our elections last year. And he's tried to foment disruption in Western Europe too, in France and Holland and Britain and so forth. So for him, this is this is kind of a revenge for what he saw as our meddling in Russia and its neighborhood. In her report, my colleague Heather Conley found that revenge can be motivation for drawing up and executing many of the plays in the Kremlin playbook's arsenal. This is a playbook that is very old. Uh, we just don't remember our Cold War history very well. This is called Russian Active Measures. And what that's designed to do is to confuse, coerce, paralyze. Um, and they use a, a variety of means to do that. So what does that mean today? And why, why, are we do, why is the Kremlin pursuing this strategy? Well, in its most simplest form, the Russians believe that the United States and their allies have been doing this to them 
since the end of the Cold War. In fact, it precipitated the Cold War and the 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 independence of the Warsaw Pact and the 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 evolution of Central Europe joining NATO and the European Union. What did we do? We funded non-governmental organizations. We had Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Voice of America, trying to counter, put our, what they would view our propaganda, supporting civil society, hoping for free elections. So now think about that in reverse. So here you have the Kremlin that's funding uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, funding media, um, using economic means to help change our hearts and minds. We're so used to doing it to others. I think we don't. We believe that we uh, won't be impacted when another country tries to change our hearts and minds about our own system and our own society. So there's an element of just, uh, this has been a playbook forever uh, during the Cold War and now, they believe, the Russians believe we have done this to them. They are doing it now to us. But the reason that this has been accelerated so dramatically is because time is not on the Kremlin side. Russia, um, uh, the, although has stabilized economically from the drop in energy prices and the sanctions, time is not on this this regime side. The economics don't bode well. The demographic crisis is coming to this country. So Mr. Putin has to dramatically change the international environment in which Russia is working in order for him to survive and his leadership to survive. So he's got to accelerate the decline of the West in order to get a new international paradigm that supports how he operates his regime. Thank you all. The hearing will come to order. In mid-March, the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime and Terrorism held a hearing on what it called the modus operandi and toolbox of Russia and other autocracies for undermining democracies throughout the world. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina chairs the Senate subcommittee. Now, the hearing today is to explain to the American people what Russia's up to. What I'm trying to explain to the American people at the Russian government in Putin's hands has been up to no good in a lot of places for a long time when it comes to breaking the back of democracy. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island is the ranking member of the subcommittee. Propaganda, espionage, blackmail, subversion. The 21st century versions of these are fake news, hacking, compromat, and political capture. The Russians have been at this for a long time. They've adapted old methods to new technologies making use of social media, malware, and complex financial transactions. But the purposes themselves are timeless. Senator Graham and I scheduled this hearing to begin a public conversation about the means and methods Russia uses to undermine democratic government. Their toolbox includes cultivating politicians through corrupt business deals and then threatening to expose the illicit arrangements. It includes acquiring control over vital economic sectors like energy to threaten and control dependent governments. It includes fake news and social media attacks, often based on network penetrations and the information illegally gathered from them. The declassified intelligence assessment released in January asserts that Russia, quote, ordered an influence campaign in 2016 aimed at the U.S. presidential election. 
At the Graham White House hearing, Heather Conley testified about the findings contained in her Kremlin playbook. Russia's strategy of influence is contained in Russia's doctrine, New Generation Warfare, of which its primary goal is to break the internal coherence of the enemy system. Russian influence works through a variety of economic and political channels, and it adapts to specific national situations, including biased news outlets, intelligence networks, Russian-financed non-governmental organizations, business linkages, and friendly politicians. While all of these tactical elements need to be understood in their own right, we can't lose sight of their cumulative effect and their overarching strategic objective, and that is the weakening of U.S. global leadership and its dominance of the international system. It's the weakening and ultimate collapse of NATO and the European Union. And finally, it is about the breakdown of the internal coherence, credibility, and moral authority of Western democracies. And once this coherence and cohesion is broken, uh, a post-Western world can, in fact, be achieved. Another witness at the Graham White House hearing was Estonia's former president, Tomas Hendrik Ilves. He explained Russia's actions to the subcommittee this way. The goal is clear that as long as the EU and equally and more importantly NATO is united and has maintains its current membership, then uh, policies of an entity that is much larger, much richer, much more powerful than Russia leaves Russia at a disadvantage. If you break up NATO, then every country except for the United States is going to be smaller than Russia. If you break up the EU, then the largest country in the EU at 80-plus million people is Germany, and compared to Russia, again, it's small. And then when you think of NATO <clears throat> with countries like mine, then uh, we're, really, we're quite minuscule and would be at a distinct disadvantage. Russia's interference in the 2016 election can also be viewed through another prism, one that isn't exactly strategic. My CSIS colleague, Olya Olikar, is a top Russia scholar. I asked her what she thought about it. During the Cold War, the Soviet Union and the United States were the two countries that mattered. For Russia, the United States still matters that way. They look to the United States. And for the United States, Russia is one of so many countries. So even when the United States is paying attention, it's not paying that much attention. So Russia wanted to be seen as a partner. What Russia got at best was, you're just another country. You know, I think that's at the core of a lot of the Russian disappointment. They wanted the United States to treat them like an equal, to consult, to work out these things together. And instead, they got a thank you for your interest. We'll let you know when we need your help. Heather Conley agrees that some of Russia's motivations to meddle in our elections lie in recent history. Putin has said that these events, both the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, was the greatest geostrategic catastrophe of the 20th century. And in some ways, it's taken 25 plus years for Russia to both stabilize itself after this extraordinary collapse of a structure that was enshrined the Soviet's and Russia's greatness. It collapsed, and now he's rebuilding a very different type of greatness and in, in pulling history from the Tsarist days, uh, from the Second World War, which the Great Patriotic War, which for Russians is their greatest moment of incredible sacrifice and heroism, pulling from different myths and the Orthodox Church and all the sacred symbols of Russia and bottling all of that up in a great military. He is, and this is, uh, it's going to sound like a joke, he is trying to make Russia great again. 
For his part, Vladimir Putin told NBC's Megyn Kelly in early June that for all he knew, a three-year-old could have attacked the U.S. and that the problem was that the Democrats are sore losers. It's easy to say it's not our fault. It's all, it's, it's the Russians. They intervened. They interfered. It's like anti-Semitism. The Jews are to blame. You are, you are an idiot because the, the Jews are to blame, right? And uh, you know what such such moods lead to, they will not end up in nothing good. If we've learned anything at all from the Kremlin playbook, it's that Putin's oddly formulated denial is just another trick play. In our next episode, part two, we'll look at how the Russians have engineered the Kremlin playbook in Central and Eastern Europe and how it may help us to better understand the 2016 election. I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you've been listening to episode one of the Kremlin playbook. Your feedback is really important to us. So leave a review of the Kremlin Playbook on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the Kremlin Playbook on Apple Podcasts too. That way you'll get new episodes as they become available. If you love the show, it's easy to share it with a friend on Apple Podcasts. The Kremlin Playbook podcast was produced by Francis Berkham of CSIS with assistance from Emily Birnbaum and Gabby Lisko of CSIS.